Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Good evening, New England. Yes, Jordan Rich in for Dan Ray till midnight tonight. I'll be back tomorrow night, one more four-hour stint, and then Dan returns on Wednesday. I had the pleasure of interviewing the next guest for my podcast, On Mike with Jordan Rich, about a month ago or two, and uh, I found her to be delightful, and I found her story to be pretty darn interesting. Most people within the sound of our voices remember her father very well. Uh, pretty tough guy to forget actually his name was john silber the president of boston university but he was also a family man a father and uh, we're going to find out a bit more about him in this new biography called snapshots of my father rachel welcome to wbz how are you i'm i'm great thanks for having me well, I brought you back because uh, a lot of people, of course, uh, haven't heard about the book, so this is a great way to introduce it and uh, and to share stories because this is a very familiar spot. Your dad did a lot of work, a lot of work. He probably had a lot of fun <laughs> hanging out yeah. in the evening hours with people like David Brudnoy, I'm guessing. Oh, absolutely. David Brudnoy was such a good friend and also... A wonderful interviewer, you know. He he made it easy, and um, he and my dad loved having conversations about well, yeah, every topic. Intellectually stimulating conversations, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> well, let let's begin with with you and the fact that you're his daughter, and uh, a lot has been written about your father. A lot of people have commented on him, have an opinion. I don't know of anybody who knows of him who doesn't have an opinion but what was your what was your main goal in writing this book now you know ever since he died about 10 years ago so many people have said oh you need to write a biography about your dad and i thought this is just impossible it, it would take years of research and several volumes to um really do justice to all of his talents and all of his accomplishments. Um, but then I realized, you know, I don't have to do everything. But what I did was take slices of his life, circling my dad and trying with each angle to get a clearer picture, because I was trying to bring him to life. Uh, uh, false idol was not something I would even be interested in. Mm. It had to be a true picture. It is a true picture, and uh, warts and all, but it's a very loving picture at the same time. I like to proceed when I do interviews with biographers and, and people like you in sort of a chronological fashion for the benefit of the audience. Yeah. So. People, of course, who knew him knew where he was from, where his roots are, but a lot of people just think Boston University, Boston, John Silber, all Boston. Talk a little bit about Texas and why 
that mattered to him so much, and it, it really formed him in so many ways, Rachel? Well, it did. Um, I think that a lot of people would be surprised that so many of the influences in his life were women. He, um, of course, loved his his father, who was very Germanic, and he loved his brother, who was his great um, comrade and pal, um, growing up two years older. So he he did everything with his brother Paul. Um, but he also had a very strong mother, grandmother, and even his mother-in-law was a very strong person in his life. My mother's mother. Um, he called her Mammy. Um, I think he took the name from the Al Cap cartoon, <laughs> Mammy Yoakum, um, because she was just such a tenacious character. She could um, create a beautiful life out of almost nothing. And um, he he really modeled the upbringing of me and my siblings um, on her way of doing things, um, taking along air mattresses on trips so that we would only have to rent one hotel room for, for the whole family to camp out, things like that where you don't worry about looking um, like you are you know, not sophisticated because yeah. you are doing things in a way that that works for you. That's that Texas common sense and uh, uh, individuality. And <laughs> yes, thrift as well. Now, you're one of six daughters and there was one son, so it's a big yeah. family. And you mentioned his brother, who he was very close to. But uh, let's talk about your mom because they met early on, right? Very early on, around college time. They did, and they were very young starting college, too. My mother was 15. Um, she started the year before my dad. And um, so she sort of so showed him the ropes when he got there. Um, they were good friends, and they um, became debate partners. Um, also, my dad took up hypnotism at that time, and he kept notebooks on his um, his sessions hypnotizing my mother. <laughs> that, <laughs> may be, that may be something that's revealing to uh, people who knew your father or heard of him, John Silber. He was uh, yeah. hypnotizing my mother. That does work occasionally when you want to woo somebody, too. Yes. Well, my mother's brother always said that she was, she was just um, going along with it to please him but um she she never let on <laughs> what brought him to boston and and talk about the process because we'll we'll reflect on bu at the time it was i don't want to say in shambles but it wasn't the bu it is today he helped build it to where it is but what was the uh what was the situation that brought him to beantown well um at the university of texas it was growing so fast, and my dad didn't approve of, of that. He wanted to keep it a, a smaller, more, um, a, a better a better size for the community. But um, the main issue was that there was a College of Arts and Sciences, and the university trustees wanted to divide that up into 
the College of Sciences and the College of Liberal Arts so that they would no longer be together. And my dad always felt that students should go to college and get a well-rounded education, that people who were in the sciences would be better people if they knew something about the liberal arts and that people in the liberal arts would be better off if they knew something about the math and math and sciences. So, um, but anyway, they, they came to, um, at some point, the trustees just fired him. And um, my dad really thinks that it was also because he was starting to make some speeches at um, some country clubs and places like that where there were actually people who might support him for a run for office. And so they were they were going to nip that in the bud, uh, so they uh, just fired him. A little bit of uh, uh, future uh, uh, <laughs> yes. prediction, because that does yes. foreshadowing. That was the word I was saying. You're the writer, of course, foreshadowing. Um, before we come back from a break, I wanted to just uh, mention the fact that uh, you know, this is really a story about John Silver, his his work, but more so his private life and his personal life and how yeah. it revolves around the work. But he did come to BU, and uh, it was a rocky start, to say the least. Why was it uh, a challenging opening stanza for him? What, what, what was happening at that time with the trustees? Well, they were looking for somebody who could rescue BU because it was languishing in obscurity as well as um, near bankruptcy. And so they needed somebody who could pull it up and give it momentum. And um, my dad, when he came to be interviewed, the first thing he said was, well, this is the ugliest blankety-blank <laughs> campus I've ever seen. What a great way and, to start. What a first impression. <laughs> Yes, he, he always said what he thought. Um, but he also said to them, if I take this job, you have to let me actually have free reign to do the job that needs to be done because I'm not going to come and do it unless I'm able to have all the tools that I need. Let's do this. Let's take a quick time out. We're going to come back and focus on the life and times of John Silber. As told by his daughter, it's a great new book by Rachel Silber Devlin called Snapshots of My Father, John Silber. We'll certainly talk about his foray into politics, but I do want to get into the family story. And It's a story of uh, achievement. It's a story of pride. It's a story of tragedy, which is akin to most families. So stand by, Rachel. We'll be right back yeah. to you. This is Jordan in for Dan Ray. You're listening to Nightside right here on WBZ. It's Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's news radio. Hello, this is Jordan Rich filling in for my good friend Dan Ray. He'll be back on Wednesday. I'll be here tomorrow night as well. As we cruise along at 1023, we're talking with Rachel Silber Devlin, who's written a book about her father, John Silber, called Snapshots of My Father. And Rachel, uh, the times uh, were tumultuous, obviously. It was the early 70s, yeah. and there was a lot of uprising in college campuses and the protests and so forth. 
And your father got himself involved in almost every one of them. He didn't shy away from meeting the crowd and and hearing their voices and uh, and mixing it up with them, did he? No, he didn't. Um, he he always believed in in hearing all sides, but he did not he did not pander to the students either. He he wanted them to act like adults and not impinge on the constitutional rights of other students or faculty or staff and um, so there there were conflicts um, he pointed out that even with the um, president before him, who he said was the sweetest guy you would ever want to meet, Arlen Chris Janer. Um, the students protested and rioted for him as well. So it, it was a sign of the times. But um, my dad saw himself as a teacher, and he didn't just shy away from these confrontations because he thought it was a chance for people to learn something and um, have a discussion, even if it was a loud one. He was, uh, as you point out in the book, very much a proponent and a champion of free speech. Yeah. Uh, and you wonder, in today's environment where there's so much controversy about free speech, yeah. whether he'd be accepted and whether his views would be considered uh, rational. I think they would be, because... I think there's a whole movement right now um, to try to bring back free speech. Um, the campuses in the United States and elsewhere have gone so far in the other direction with things like safe spaces where um, students aren't supposed to have to hear opposing viewpoints. Um, my dad always thought of the whole university as a safe space where it was safe to discuss anything. That's the whole point. You, you bring everything to the table, you have a discussion, and you um, come to some conclusions. Um, you're not supposed to be able to keep yourself safe from hearing opposing views. What was he like, though, when he got home from that kind of a day? I mean, he had a lot of pressure on him, as people in those positions do, and seven children is not exactly an easy easy uh, uh, corral to handle. <laughs> but what was well, he like was so around the house? Yeah. Um, on, on normal days... He would, um, he would come home for dinner, even though he knew he was going back to the office for several hours. He, um, sometimes we had to wait <laughs> if, if, he, if, if he couldn't get there exactly at the right time, but we did wait, and he never acted like uh, this was a duty or something he had to do. He obviously wanted to be there, so he would, he would get there for dinner even when he was going back to work. Interesting. Um, there is, of course, uh, the physical birth defect that uh, was so prominent. Uh, I say prominent because he did nothing to hide it. He had... Uh, well, why don't you explain what, what had... No, he, he 
even from from birth he he had a shortened arm that um his mother would um shorten his the sleeves of his clothes from his earliest days so that he could use that he called it a stub um for for all kinds of things and he knew how to use it to climb trees or button buttons um he he used it all the time and um and to fight and to fight in close (laughs) it had a hard bone in it so he could pummel somebody with it in in the guts but he never uh well i shouldn't put words in your mouth did he ever use it as a an excuse or did he ever make mention of it i never recall him bringing it up oh, in a public he, he could make convention. use of it he could he could mention it as a joke or something mm. like that as a you know um i can't even think of a good example but no not normally it it was he would rather um he'd rather you you thought he was fierce than to think he was <laughs> disabled in any way no i, I there was nothing uh <laughs> disarming about him no pun intended there, yeah. he was a very very strong personality and he just exuded that kind of strength and for many people he was was overbearing but yeah. that's the impression that they had of him and in public he could be very strong but you paint a different picture often when he was just dad well what and also um what a lot of people don't um don't call attention to is that his leading characteristic or one of his leading characteristics was humor. He enjoyed humor um, from other people and causing it himself um, more than anything. He loved to, um, he loved it when his office played pranks on him. He, he loved it. He loved to do it himself. He had, um, people who who created funny um, calendars of him, either um, dressed up like Napoleon or um, a wanted poster one year. Each year there was a different funny poster that was a calendar. See, it, I, I'm, I'm just imagining what people are thinking who remember John Silver <laughs> as the stern tough administrator and educator and academic powerhouse uh, and being goofy at times, which is great for all of us to remember. We're all goofy. We should at least have that characteristic available to to showcase. Now, one of the stories, of course, deals with you guys going away on a vacation. And uh, many listeners may remember this. And when you were away, the residence where you lived, the house was torched was set on fire yes. arson T- tell this us about shortly that. after we came to boston um when um the riots on campus were at their peak um students had been protesting in front of our home even um burning with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Pop in effigy. You know, when you see a, um, a something that looks like your dad being burned, it's kind of um, frightening. My brother... And I and some of my sisters standing at the front windows watching while my mother took the little kids off to the hallway. Pop was out of town at that time or he would have been outside talking to the students. But um, then we went on vacation right after Christmas. We went on our first ski trip. And while we were away, um, somebody burned our house down. They, it started in the basement and went up through the um, living room, through my parents' bedroom, through their walk-in closet. All of their clothes were gone, up through the third floor, through my brother's room. And we never found out who did it. They did say it was arson, but um, didn't, didn't catch who did it. Well, it, it certainly is jarring to know that somebody's trying to destroy your home uh yeah. but it's also it's also a testament to him and to the families basically saying screw it we're here we'll just live somewhere well, else yeah we, we had the house had to be repaired and then we came right back so um but pop was also getting death threats at that time he um we had to have police outside the house, um, the rented house that we had during that time. And um, one time a man with a gun was caught on the roof outside the kitchen. Mm. Um, so it, it was it was a frightening time. But as you say, we didn't we didn't let it stop us. Indeed. We'll take a stop down right now just for a break, and when we come back, we'll talk further about your dad and about his home life, uh, the loss of your brother and what that meant to him, and also his foray into politics again here in Massachusetts. He was very close to winning the governor's seat. We're talking about John Silber in a book called Snapshots of My Father, John Silber. The author is John's daughter, Rachel, Rachel Silber Devlin. Brand new book with a uh, forward by Lance Morrow. We'll continue right after these words. This is Nightside with Jordan Rich in for Dan Ray. It's Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Welcome back. This is Jordan in for Dan, as mentioned, and we're chatting with Rachel Silber. Devlin has written a book called Snapshots of My Father. The man in question is John Silber, a very well-known and uh, well-remembered name here in New England. Had a lot of impact not only on Boston University, but on the city and in the area itself. So, Rachel, a couple of other uh, areas in the book is jam-packed with uh, interesting information, but your brother, one out of 
seven children, um, and uh, it's a very poignant part of the story that some people may remember, but he was sadly um, stricken with AIDS during the worst of it um, yeah. early on. And uh, what was your father's reaction to that, and, and also understanding the lifestyle that uh, David was involved with? Well, it was a, a devastating diagnosis, you know, at the time, especially there, there was nothing you could do. Um, my dad tried, to, you know, to find out if there was anything that could be done medically. He took David for doctor's appointments and tried to find out if there was any research being done and if it could be hurried along and and help David, but um, mainly at that time, it was just trying to take care of David and his his friends came to stay. He came home to stay during that time. Um, his partner came and stayed as well, and my dad did not seemed to be the powerhouse that he usually was. He lost, um, it was like a losing battle, you know. A man, a man of his personality type is usually in control, and that was uh, something he yeah. couldn't control, correct? No, he couldn't control it. Um, he, he was just, he was wandering around doing the dishes, things like that, mm -hmm. seeing if he could do anything to help, and it was um, there was nothing to be done. It was a dev devastating diagnosis. David was such a careful person in his life. He was such a, um, you know, if, if he had even known AIDS existed, it, it would be unlikely that he would catch it, that kind of thing. But... Um, it was back at the beginning when it was not well known. The family thought that he and his partner, oh, we were so relieved when we heard about AIDS. We thought, oh, David and his partner, they, Mark, um, they're keeping each other safe. You know, that's how we looked at it. Um, but when David and Mark first heard about AIDS, um, when they were first together, they um, both went and got tested, and they came back positive, mm. and then they decided um, to keep it a secret for as long as they could so that they could have as much of a normal life as possible. By, by the way, um, Mark, his partner, yes. didn't live yes. long after David either, which is no, really No, no, he, he seemed very strong while David was alive, but then shortly after he died, he went to. Let's shift gears a little bit and yeah. uh, talk about the uh, famous race for governor in 1990. Uh. And, uh, you know, you, you do write about this because it's something that we all remember, those of us from yeah. here. And it involved uh, a pretty tough battle for governor. He was the Democrat nominee along with Marjorie Clapperwood, I believe. And, That's right. And he was running against Bill Weld, and he was in the lead, according to the polls, and then 
something happened, a media event, if you will. You want to describe what that was? Well, the media event happened when he was down in the polls. It happened a month before the election. And um, it's interesting how um, the Natalie Jacobson interview took place. She didn't go to, um, didn't call the campaign office. What she did was she took her dog to my sister, who's a vet, and um, she knew that my sister Alexandra was a um, was John Silver's daughter because Natalie's daughter also worked at that vet's office as an intern assistant. So Natalie took her dog, and during the examination, she she proposed the idea of having a casual getting to know the family type of interview for a Sunday show, which we thought that's great. Um, but then when the interview happened, it didn't, it didn't come off that way. Um, first of all, it went on for a couple of hours and it went from the living room to the dining room and back to the living room with Natalie really asking one insinuating question after another. At least that's how it seemed to us. And um, at one point she asked my sisters and me um, what we thought about um, women taking on more traditional men's jobs. And I said, well, um, if a female firefighter comes up a ladder to rescue me, I sure hope she's one big, strong woman. And um, I thought that was amusing and um, true. But um, Natalie didn't smile. There was no warmth in her eyes. Um, it's very daunting when you're being interviewed like that. And didn't then your she father, my, was he yeah. sick? Did he have the flu or something? Oh, he me? had the flu before that, oh, so he was recovering from recovering the flu. From and the flu. I, okay. yeah. I was worried that he, um, he, he looked a little haggard. He didn't. He didn't look like um, his normal, healthy self. But then, when Natalie asked my younger son, who was in second grade at the time, um, she she had a serious look on her face with her forehead puckered, and um, she said to him, "Well, how does it make you feel when at school when they say terrible things about your grandfather?" And we just felt like she crossed the line. And um, my dad looked disgusted. And so then when she asked Pop um, what he thought his weakness, his greatest weakness was, he, he just, um, he had some choice words for her. And he, um, bristled with contempt. Mm. And it was um, then she um, did something very calculating. She put out a very small snippet from the interview, and the, but the she saved most of it, including the outbursts, for a month, and then a carefully edited version of it with. Um, Pop's outburst and none of her insinuating questions came out just before the election. 
So and did you have any sense, uh, As uh, it sounds like you had a sense that things weren't going well at the actual interview itself, but did you oh, have yes. any concept or an idea that this would have such an impact? Because it really became the cornerstone of the whole thing. You know, at the time, it's all happening, and you don't have time to think about what is going to happen. Also, we were way down in the polls at that time. It was only during the next month that Pop came up in the polls and actually surpassed Weld and was was ahead in the polls when she dropped the bombshell just before the election. And then, of course, it was amplified because Dick Morris was the PR guy for Weld, and he had it going on the television commercials over and over and yeah, over. <laughs> he was, of course, famous for the, the during the Clinton years and yeah. beyond. Right. Um, uh, your father really wanted to be governor, do you think, or or? Oh, I think he did. I think he had great ideas for the state, um, and. I think he would have been a very good governor. Later, he he challenged Marjorie. Uh, he challenged um, Natalie to um, release the entire tape so that people could at least see what led to the outburst. Um, but of course, she didn't. Never did. Interesting. Uh, your account, because you're not only part of the campaign because you're a part of the family but you're part of the family <laughs> you're his daughter so you have a take yeah. on it that's that's different than say uh media critics and so forth that uh, that watched the outcome but it's um uh, interesting uh, so i think that we, we we felt critical about it too yeah um my dad knew that his temper had lost him the, the election i think he was chastened by it, I do think that um, he had not realized how it would look and um, how devastating it would be until it happened. Indeed, it was. It's quite a, ch a chapter in the book that is worth reading because you go inside the home, inside the lives, the lives of the Silbers, and also uh, what it's like to be sort of front and center with the cameras rolling. It's not easy, no question about that. We'll take one more break, uh, take a call or two when we return. We're talking once again with Rachel Silber Devlin, uh, writing a book about her father called Snapshots of My Father, John Silber, and we'll be back right after these words. You're on Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Welcome back. Jordan here in for Dan. We're talking again with Rachel Silber Devlin. Her book is called Snapshots of My Father, John Silber. Go to a quick call here before we wrap up. This is Jack. Jack P., I believe, in Newton. Welcome aboard. Yes. Hi, hi Rachel. I'm uh, Jack Porter. I was a professor at BU in a College of Basic Studies uh, while your father was president. I got along with him quite well. <laughs> Maybe just a of one of the handful of professors who did, because yeah. I wasn't intimidated by him. Um, I think that was the thing. So I, I respected him very much, and I was also a very good friend of Ellie Wiesel. Mm. Uh, I also was on an advisory committee for your father when he ran for governor. Again, that could make me very popular on campus either. <laughs> but, uh, but it was... Uh, I, I, I'm glad that you opened up the, the what the background to this because Natalie Jacobson was a, a I, I guess you could say a loving, a loved, you know, uh, personage in, in, in Boston, and 
and it was like she, you know, father was like attacking her, and I now I see that yes. it was really different. And I went, thank you for clarifying this. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, our Rachel. perspective was was very different, and and of course she was a, a beloved um, figure in Boston, and so that made it even more devastating. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Lee Wiesel, Jack. I was going to bring him up and others that your father brought to the university. And, and Jack, thank you for for not only joining us but for your contributions to be. We're, we're tight on time here. I got to run, but. Um, Talk a little bit before we wrap up here, uh, Rachel, about the contributions in terms of bringing in some of the big names that really made a difference. Yes, well, my dad brought in so many wonderful professors, and um, he 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 never wanted to bring someone who would just be interested in doing their own research or writing their own books. He always was interested in someone who also wanted to teach because he wanted to bring them in to create this great experience for the students. And Ellie Wiesel was one who came to BU and then 10 years later got a Nobel Prize also. Um, another one um, he brought was um, Phyllis Curtin, who um, became the dean of the School of Fine Arts and who created the Opera Institute that my dad loved at Boston University. We went to so many operas and so many plays. My dad um, also um, helped found the Huntington Theater at Boston mm -hmm. University. Right, right. There's a picture, I mentioned this when we did the podcast together, and... Uh, we might just kind of close on this. Uh, it's, it speaks volumes, I think, about who he was because everyone had this image of him as being austere and you know, unapproachable. Tell the story about the haircut and the barber. Oh, okay. Well, um, the bar barber uh, at University Barbershop that my dad got his haircut at for years and years, um, John Zita, um, one time you know, playfully, um, he was cutting my dad's hair and, and the photographer was taking pictures. And then my dad traded, traded places with him and um, trimmed John's, John Zitza's hair. So that was fun. Well, it, my it, dad loved to do fun things like that. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's always the way people treat the help or people in service positions that make a difference. I mean, I know he had his run-ins with the professors, but uh, from what you told us in the book, he, he treated people who Well, he loved him. professors who, who did a good job right. and who, um, and he loved anybody who did a good job and anybody who was striving to do a good job. And one more thing about your father that may not be known to people who are outside the circle, his artistic ability, particularly in yeah. what area? Sculpting? Yes, he was a sculptor. He played the trumpet. Um, he loved to draw. He would he would draw wherever he went. He would he would draw a profile of someone that he saw, you know, on napkins, on any any surface. <laughs> he was well, always drawing. 
Well, he he created uh, quite an institution at Boston University, and you know, as controversial as he was in the minds of some, he really was a doer and an action man, and uh, obviously a very good family man, as you point out. Rachel, thank you so much for staying up a bit late and chatting with me, and I, I wish you the best with the book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot, and I was a fan uh, of him with David uh, when he did uh, these hours on BZ. So yeah. it was great to see him come alive in the book. So Thanks thank so you. much for having me on the program. It's been a pleasure. And thank thanks you. to the caller. Yes. Okay. Rachel okay. Silber Devlin has been our guest. Snapshots of my father, John Silber. We'll uh, be coming back following this break for news and information. And uh, we have a couple of things that we didn't get to. One, of course, is the Twitter explosion with uh, Elon Musk letting one particular uh, journalist account for what happened during the uh, famous laptop scandal in the late uh, portion of the campaign in 2020. So we'll take a look at that. Also, work perks. Gloucester uh, Globe did something on work, a big magazine section. So these are the best perks you could find at work. We have a list. Maybe you have a list of your own. Maybe it's Maybe you've never had a perk. <laughs> you may be perkless. Who the heck knows? So we've got a bunch of uh, open line stuff to talk about when we return. This is WBZ. The uh, number, of course, is 617-254-1030. The show is Nightside. The host is Dan Ray. He's off tonight and tomorrow. I'm Jordan Rich, and we shall be right back. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.